So Richard Halverson was a uh, Senate chaplain for a number of years, and one day he was asked, he said, uh, when you look at the state of the nation, do you pray for the senators? And he thought about it for a second. He said that, well, you know, actually, when I consider the senators, I pray for the nation. <laughs> and uh, I thought about that in light of the Simpson group being on retreat, and they asked that we would pray for them. But when I consider the group, I pray for the retreat facility uh, that happens to have them there that, this particular weekend. Anyway, a friend came back not too long ago from a, a backpacking trip to Wyoming. And uh, while he was there, he happened to be walking alongside a country road, mountain road. And uh, he got closer to what he saw, lying something lying in the middle of this dirt road. And as he got closer to it, he recognized the fact that it was an Indian who was lying with his ear to the ground. And he got closer to this Indian, and he heard this Indian say, he said, hmm, Chevy pickup truck, large tires, green Firewood in back. Man driving, large German Shepherd. Passenger seat. Montana license plate. 1896. PUC. Now, my friend was amazed. He had never met anybody like that. And he said, That's amazing to me that you could tell all of that by listening to your ear to the ground. He said, Listening to my ear to the ground, nothing, man. That truck just ran me over. Now, there is a point to that, uh, and, the, and the point is simply this, that if we don't check into the facts, it's real easy to jump to some conclusions about things, and uh, that happens pretty consistently. You know, I can't help but thinking that you, you're all going to have like this little crick in your neck, man, for about a week. It's like being in an airplane talking to the person next to you, but hey, if it works, whatever, but um, I'm comfortable. How are you? But the point is that we've got a passage this morning that's one of those familiar passages, that we draw certain conclusions from it because we're overly familiar with it, I think. And so as we take a look at this, I think you're going to begin to realize that some of us have drawn conclusions from this passage that we need to double-check our facts. And so we've seen in our last couple of sessions that if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet we live in disobedience, the Bible clearly teaches that we are lying and uh, also it says that if we have uh, fellowship with God or that we live a life that is obedient to what God says our life should reflect, then we have fellowship with Him. So the problem that we have, though, is what do we do, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, who have fellowship with God because of that relationship, what do we do about the sin that occurs in our life? How do we handle it? See, because we already know that if we say we have fellowship with God and yet live a life of disobedience, we're lying. You can't have fellowship and live, live in sin. It just can't work because God is perfect and morally pure, and so it's exclusive of, of the fact that we can live in sin and yet say we have fellowship with Him. It just doesn't work. What compatibility, according to 2 Corinthians, does darkness have with light? There isn't any. And so as we go through this, we need to take a look, if you've got your Bibles, to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 8. But here's a quote that uh, Billy Sunday, who was an evangelist, said this about sin. You know, sin can just devastate our lives. And he thundered against sin from the time that he preached in the 1890s up until the era of the Depression. And this is what he said. He was quoted as saying this. He said, I'm against sin. He said, I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth, and when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it to death until I go to heaven. <laughs> so the guy just had a problem with sin. But some of us don't. We can tend to uh, accommodate sin in our life. And in 1 John 
the first chapter, beginning with verse 8, that's the passage or the theme that we'll deal with today. And there's some familiar verses in here that many of us have come to conclusions about, and I think that to some danger in the way that we view it. He says this in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Some of us have drawn conclusions from uh, the familiarity that we see in this passage, and I just pray that we would be open and teachable to the truth of your word, that we would set aside any uh, preconceived notions uh, or presuppositions that we have, that we just lay them aside, and that we would listen to what you have to say. God, help us to leave here with... uh, a new kernel of truth, a new understanding that we can apply um, even as we sit here this morning. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So the topic that we're going to be dealing with is what do we do about our sins? If you've come to know Christ and you struggle with sin in your life, as many of us do, we have to deal with this particular issue. What do we do about the sin or sins that we find true in our life? The text tells us, and if you look at this in verse 9, a familiar verse to all of us, how many of you have memorized this verse? How many of you know, how many of you are familiar with this verse? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you actually memorized this verse? All right, many of us have. And many, and, and many um, topical memory type texts that you'll have, this is a, a fundamental verse that people memorize. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the text says. The problem that we have is what does that really mean? And uh, one of the things that's interesting to me as you go through this, the word confession, if we confess our sins, that, that term to confess elsewhere in Scripture means this. It means to promise with an oath or to give one's word. If we confess our sin, if we promise with an oath, God, I know I've sinned, and I promise I won't do it again. All right. Then are we forgiven? Then i got a problem. Because in Matthew 18, what did Jesus tell Peter? How many times should he forgive? Seventy times seven, meaning what? An unlimited number of times. There is no limitation that's put on forgiveness. So would not God be also held to the same teaching that he told Peter? Of course he would. So what he's saying is, well, then we look at it and go, wait a minute. If I promise with an oath never to do again and I do it again, does that mean that I'm not forgiven? Is that what that means? Well, it can't mean that because obviously we know that he taught to forgive 70 times 7. So if we sin and we continue to do the same thing and we keep on confessing and we keep on falling back into it and we keep on asking for forgiveness, is he going to say, I'm sorry that you didn't keep up your end of it, so therefore I'm not forgiving you? See, we've got a problem with that. And also we know that if we make that promise to God, and every one of us have cut the deal with God. And it's all, hey, you know what? If you get me out of this jam, I promise I'll never do this again. We've all done that. Oh, please, not this time. You know, do whatever. I swear I'll never do this again. I'll never do this again. And then what happens the next time? And I swear, I'll, well, I really mean it this time. I know you knew me because you know me. You know I didn't really mean it the last time. So that's why you forgive me. So now you know that I really mean it. I think I do. You'll know if I do it again that I really didn't mean it this time either. But that's okay. So we go through this stuff. The problem that we have is Ecclesiastes 5 says, as far as swearing an oath, if we swear an oath and we don't live up to the oath, then that is also sin. 
So not only do I sin with the sin that I'm sinning, but I sin in promising God that I'll never do it again. If I do it again, I made a vow that I won't, and I did. So now I've got two sins I've got to deal with. How do you handle that? Man, it gets real complicating as you go through this. So we look at all that, and, and then the problem with Matthew 18 is that we know <laughs> that he says forgive 70 times 7. So we wrestle with this, and we have to ask some questions. So there must be more to confession, if we confess our sins, than what appears to be, at first glance, involved in confessing. So we'll take a look at seven things, seven biblical facts concerning confession. Let me ask you a question. This is pretty, I mean, it's, it's somewhat simple. But it, when you sin, now sin is anything contrary to the moral will of God. God determines sin. There's our first problem, right? So we have to agree on a definition. The definition of sin is whatever God says is sin is sin. Because otherwise we all have our own definitions of what sin is. You know, what sin is to me, it may not be to you by your definition, and on and on it goes. So from a biblical standpoint, what God calls sin is sin. So we'll get that out of the way. Now we deal with, okay, what, do you, what choices do you have when you sin? Anybody? What choices do you have? Okay, one is you repent, which means what? Yeah, it, literally the term means, okay, it means if you did this, then it means you turn from that and you do the, the other direction. So um, if you lie, repentance means I'm not going to lie, but I'm going to tell the truth. That's all, that's all it means. What, what, that's one choice. What other choice do you have? Keep on sinning. That's another choice. Just keep on doing it. And as you struggle with it and you, you say, man, you know, it really bothers me. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but well, I, I have a choice to keep on doing it. And it depends on how badly you feel about it and how many people make you feel bad about it, whether you're even coerced into thinking about doing anything else. So what we do is we surround ourselves by people who think, okay, it's okay, what we did is okay, because the people that don't think it's okay, we don't want to hang around them because they make us feel bad about what we did. So we just decide who our new friends will be. So that's another choice. We can keep on doing it. What else can you do? What else? Ignore it. You can ignore it. Hey, and we can go to Genesis. The very first thing that was ever thought of in dealing with sin is what? Hide it. Here we go. That is, you know, that's sin 101. That is, uh, you know, basic <laughs> sinology or whatever. I mean, okay, we sin, we hide it. That, that's, I mean, that's covering it up. And that's an option. So if you think about it, really there's two choices. One is that we cover it and continue to do it. By covering it, we would continue to do it. Or the second is we would confess it or repent and turn from it. But what does that really mean? So if we go down through this, we're going to take a look at seven facts about confession. And they're going to seem simple as you go through it, but they get profound because some of us struggle with it, and we struggle with that particular verse. Confession means that we do not deny the presence or the practice of sin in our life. Okay? This is very simple. Confession means we don't deny the presence or practice of sin in our life. You and I cannot possibly ever receive reconciliation if we continue to deny that what we did is wrong. A relationship. Some of us are, oh, we're, we're, we feel bad about the consequences of our choices, and yet we continue to deny the sin that caused the consequences. You follow what I'm saying? We've all been there, right? Especially us as men, we know how to use this. It's, I feel bad that my wife is ticked, but I'm not going to admit I was wrong, and there's got to be another way around it to patch this thing up. You've been there? So it's like, you, you, you know, you try whatever way you think will work. And, you know, basically what it comes down to is saying, you know what, you were right and I was wrong. What I did was wrong. 
See, you can't have reconciliation without saying, I was wrong. And the same is true in our relationship with God. You and I can't have reconciliation with God until we get to the point of saying, you know what? You're right. i got a problem in my life. I can't continue to deny it. And he talks about two things. One, the presence of it and the practice of it. And that's what 1 John 1, 1.8 is. He says, if we claim to be without sin, the presence of sin in our life, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The presence of sin in our life. The second thing has to do with the practice of it in verse 10. He says, if we claim we have not sinned, which is an act, then we make him, capital H, out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. That software program really bugs me though. You got to have to try to figure out some way to correct the, the pronouns that are messed up like that. But anyway, if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. He's talking about the fact that, hey, when we sin, we make God out to be a liar if we say we haven't sinned. So we'll go through this and take it step at a time. If we really want to take care of the sin problem in our life, we need to stop denying the presence of sin in our life and the practice of sin as it occurs. So we'll go down through it. Number one. Also, I want to take a look at something here because in 1 John 2.23, the opposite of of denial is acknowledgement. See, it says, no one who denies the, the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So we see that he's saying, hey, if you deny the Son, if you deny Jesus Christ, then you don't have the Father. But you acknowledge Jesus or confess Him, literally it means that when we confess Him, we say the same thing about Him that God says about Him or the same thing that the Bible teaches. So if you deny Him, it's the opposite of confession. So denial, in this case about sin, is, is saying, hey, look, you know what? I don't have sin in my life and I don't sin. And he, and he tells us three things that are true of this passage. And I want you to kind of examine yourself if you go, as you go through this because the first thing is we deceive ourselves. If we deny the presence or the practice of sin in our life, then we begin to deceive ourselves. And it's important to understand this because usually deceiving ourselves occurs after we deceive who? Someone else. Someone else. See, we go through great lengths to make sure that everybody thinks we're okay. And we hide from, you know, I hide from you things that are going on in my life. Because I want to give you a certain appearance or an image. We all do this. And it begins with self-deception. But it also actually starts with deceiving other people. We don't want anybody else to find out what's really going on in our life. So we begin to fake each other out. We put on, we're, we're chameleons. You, know, you see people like that? Whatever group they're in, they blend in. How they say, hey, you're green today. You know, what's the deal? I saw yesterday you were red. You know, everywhere you go, you're a different color. Because you just blend in with the crowd. That's the guy, like the guy I talked about last week that left Jesus in the car. You know, you had to be here to really appreciate this. And, but, you know, basically what he was saying was, hey, whatever group I'm with, that's the way I am. I haven't got to that point in my life where I take Jesus everywhere with me and I leave him in the car. Interesting way to, to approach the subject, but the point is well taken, and that is that he just blends in with the crowd. So here's the problem. Wouldn't it be fun if we could just kind of follow each other around sometimes? I'd love it, man. I'd just dig on it. Boy, you know, you guys sit here, you all look pretty cool. And i just like to follow you around. Why? Because you put on an act. We're hypocritical. We put on a mask is what basically it means. But what are we like when we're at work? And what are we like when we're at lunch? Or what are we like in the locker room? Or what are we like on the baseball field? Or what are we like when we're dealing with our spouse and our kids? What are we like there? 
See, we, we want to fake each other out. But see, that's why your spouse knows you best or the people closest to you know whether you're being hypocritical or not. You know, they see you in action and it just basically turns their stomach. That's why reconciliation is so tough. Because, hey, 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 don't give me this. You put on this act. I know who you really are. I know what you're really like. They may fall for it, but I'm not going to fall for it. And the good news is God doesn't fall for it either because he knows everything and he sees what's going on anyway. He's always there watching. That's what Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 teach us. So what's the point? The point is we go through great lengths to fake each other out. I talked to a guy this week who was in the process or, or knows of a person who uh, had left his spouse and uh, was a member of a church. And you know what he did? He rented an apartment in Pasadena because he had to rent it. So he had an address to turn into the church because he didn't want to say he was living with his girlfriend. Yeah, I went through great lengths to fake everybody out. He was paying rent. So he could live with his girlfriend. Why? Because he didn't want anybody to know at the church what he was doing. Who is he fooling? Well, see, first of all, he's fooling everybody at the church. Right? See where it starts? But who's he really fooling? Well, the Bible says he begins to fool himself. He begins to even believe in his own mind that what he's doing is okay because the people around him don't know what he's doing and so they validate what he's doing because they really don't know what it is that he's doing. So he fakes everybody else out, and when he sees that they still receive him and, and, and are friends with him and encourage him in his time of difficulty in his marriage and all the stuff that's going on, and his friends are all around him saying, you know, hang in there, you know, it'll be all right. Meanwhile, the guy is shacking up with somebody over here, and he's getting all this encouragement over here, saying everything is okay, so he deceives his friends, and then he begins to deceive himself because he can't really be that bad of a guy because everybody still likes him. You see how it works? I had a guy who sat in a Bible study that I taught for six years. And he had no, no fewer than ten sexual encounters with people other than his wife. He sat there week after week after week and never, never did any of us know what was going on. Until it all hit the fan later. I went, what? How did you do that? How did you do that? That was amazing. How did you do that? How did you come here every week? And listen to this and be a part of it and pray together. And all, oh, we're opening up and we're sharing with one another. And then I find out six years later that the whole time we're doing that, you're out there doing that and you don't even let anybody know because he deceived himself into thinking, I'm okay. I'm going to church. I'm studying the Bible. I'm okay. And you know what? I know better now. And I also know this, that there are some of you doing the same thing. I'm not that dumb anymore. And you're sitting here, and you're saying, I'm all right. It's going on. I got a call. Somebody left somebody else. Oh, did that? What? Wait, just with the Bible study. We go to the Bible study together, but we're in the process of getting divorced. Hey, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay, just so we don't hurt anybody. Hey, what kind of deception is that? So we fake each other out so that we can continue to be looked at as a certain way, and when we are, then we think we're okay. And the Bible says, if we deny sin in our life, we even then begin to deceive ourselves. I'm not that bad. How can I be that bad? No one's confronting me on it. It must be okay. They just go, man, alive. So once we begin to lie to others, then we begin to buy it ourselves. You know what probably the best example of that in Scripture is? Life of King David. For over a year, he deceived everybody around him. You know what he did? Remember? He had sex with Bathsheba. And to cover that, he killed her husband. 
And then for a year, he went on his business as usual. Never dealt with it. It was okay. Nobody called him on it. Wasn't having a problem with it. Except for the Psalm 32 tells us, for a year his body wasted away. For a year he struggled with it. And when Nathan the prophet came and confronted him about the, light, the sin in the life of another person, David said, hey, how can that guy do that? And Nathan said, it's you. And he went, oh, shoot. You're right, I've been trying to hide it for a year now, and you know what? But I, and I, I got to the point where I believed it, that I even deceived myself. Some of us are really good at it. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. And so what we do is we justify it. We cheat on our taxes. And you know what we say? <laughs> Government wastes money anyway. I don't know, what, what line do you use? <laughs> you know? We have, we, have, we, have, we have sex outside of our marriages. What line do we use? I'm not hurting anybody. My needs are being met. That's just the way that it is. See, so we go through this. Or, or we lie. Well, I'm not really lying to you. See, I, I didn't want to tell you the whole thing because you know, I wasn't sure of all the details, so I had to say that to you for right now just to buy a little time. I really wasn't lying to you. I really wasn't lying. And what was it? It was buying time. Well, is it lying or not lying? I don't know. Well, it really wasn't cheating. It really wasn't stealing. It's not stealing to turn in something on your expense account that's not real because it's, it's industry practice. That's the standard. That's not really stealing, is it? I mean, let's vote on it. <laughs> I, that's, I think that'll work. <clears throat> I think, we'll just vote on it. How many of you turn in things on your expense account that you shouldn't do, but you do it because you have a certain expense account and you know you have to spend it or you lose it, they'll re- readjust it, so you have to do it. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, anyone ever calls you, what a great time in Catalina. I said, what? I never got to Catalina with you. I was young then too. He went, no, 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 trust me, you had a great time. I said, well, if I'm going to have a great time, then when are we going to have a great time? Because I'm really looking forward to going to Catalina. And, you know, I didn't understand it. You know, I just didn't understand that. How many of you turn in stuff? Don't raise your hand. How many of you turn in stuff? Well, it's not really stealing because that's what you do. Well, see how we can deceive ourselves? We can deceive the person we turn the expense account into, and then we can begin to deceive ourselves because that's just the standard practice. That's the way it is. So we go through it. Now, the second problem is that we even make God a liar. Look at verse 10. That's what he said. He says, you know, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word's not in us. Well, I'm not going to call God a liar. Are you? What's the options? Is stealing stealing? See here, follow this through. Very, it's very simple. If God says it's stealing and you say it's industry practice, who's lying? <laughs> if God says it's adultery but it's industry practice, <laughs> who's lying? See what's happening here? Somebody's lying, right? It's either, it's either stealing or it's not stealing. If God says it is stealing, and I say, no, it's not stealing, then which one of us is lying? Either God has to be lying or I have to be lying. And God cannot lie because it's against his moral character. He can't lie. It's not possible for him to lie. It's impossible for him to lie. But it is very possible for me to lie. See what's happening here? God, that's not really stealing. Yes, it is. That's not really cheating. Yes, it is. That's not really adultery. Oh, yes, it is. 
that's not really fornication. Um, yes, it is. Who's lying? Good example. Peter. Lord, I'll never deny you. Not me. Jesus said, yes, you will. Peter said, no, I won't. Jesus said, yes, you will. And I didn't go back and forth too terribly long on this deal, but the point was this. Who was lying? Was Jesus lying or was Peter lying? How do we know? Peter denied him. Hey, that ends that argument, right? There's no debate there. But Peter said, no, I'll never deny you. Yes, you will. Peter, you know what he's saying? You're lying. You're going to deny me. A couple years ago, it was two years ago, I was at a conference, and um, a gentleman by the name of Gordon MacDonald was there. Some of you have read some of his books. He had his first book. It was um, Ordering Your Private World, I believe it was. Uh, a great book. We talked to Gordon and his wife, Gail. Gordon was a pastor, and he was also the president of InterVarsity at that time, a major ministry. We began to talk to him. He said, you know, he said, there was one thing in my life that I was convinced that I'd never do, and that was that I would never fall in the area of moral purity. I would never cheat on my wife, is what he was saying. Six months into a sexual relationship with his secretary, his world fell apart. And as we began to talk about it, I began to realize something that is very clearly taught in Scripture. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, he said that we need to take heed of where we stand, lest we too fall. And the point that he was making during this weekend was, you know what? He said, there was an area of my life that I knew I'd never fall in, and that was exactly the area that I fell. Peter said, Lord, I'll never deny you, and that's exactly what he did. Some of us are pointing fingers at other people saying, that's something that I could never do. And the Bible clearly teaches that all of us have the propensity to do anything at any time that's against the moral character of God. That's denying the presence of sin in our life. We have a fallen sin nature. That nature does not go away until one day in eternity when we see Him face to face. We will struggle with sin in our life while we're alive and in this flesh. And anyone who denies that denies the teaching of Scripture and sets themselves up for a fall in some area of their life. I realized through my conversation with Gordon that guess what? I am capable of doing anything at any time unless I am walking in the light or walking in obedience with God. I could just as easily do what he did. I could just as easily do what you're struggling with. And the only thing that keeps me from doing it is just being obedient to the word of God. Hey, it doesn't get easy. It's a matter of daily obedience. I can do anything. But see, that's because I don't want to make God a liar. If God says I can do anything, I think He knows I can do anything because He made me and He knows exactly what we're capable of. So we need to understand that. And so He says that we make Him a liar. And the last thing is so obvious, and that is that we don't have His Word in us. It says if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and His Word is not in us. Why? Because the Word of God clearly teaches this, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that each one of us are sheep and have gone astray, each one of us have gone our own way. There is none of us who are righteous, no, not one. The Word of God teaches that all of us better take heed where we stand, lest we too fall. We're all capable of doing anything. That's what the Word of God teaches. The problem that we have is the Word of God's not in some of us as we're dealing with certain sin in our life because we're still convinced that it's not sin and we've justified it. And so what we need to do is get a good dose of what God teaches on that particular subject. 
and say, hey, you walk away after you study the scripture and you tell me that, sin, that sex outside of marriage is okay, you've got to show me where you got that. If you walk away from Scripture and tell me that that's not stealing when you turn in something on your expense account, that's not cheating and that's not lying, that's not deception, you show me where you got that. I'll guarantee you, the Word is a lamp under our feet and a light under our past, man. That thing will shine right on us and let you know exactly where you're falling short of the standards of God. You can't get in the Word of God because David said, Hey, you know what, Lord? Your Word I've hid in my heart so that I don't sin against you. If we got the Word of God in our hearts because we're studying it, because we're in it, we can't walk away from it and say that what we're doing is okay. The Word of God is the thing that will keep us straight. Some of us don't want to get into it because we don't want to know what it says because we already know in our heart what we're doing is wrong. And the last thing you want to do is see that it says it's wrong too because then you've got to deal with it. Then you either got a choice. You're going to have to cover it and continue to hide it and continue to do it or you're going to have to say, gee, Lord, I've got to stop denying the presence and the practice of sin in my life. That's the only way we're going to be able to deal with this is just to deal with it up front and up straight. You know, the other thing is that when you're dealing with people who have never trusted Christ. Here's the problem. Got a friend that I'm dealing with right now. He is a nice guy. He is a good guy. It's so it's sickening sometimes how nice he is. It's like, gee whiz, how can this guy be and still not have ever come to a relationship with Christ? He gives money to charity. He's a, he never says a bad thing about anybody. He's an all-around good guy, nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. But he's got one little, one little hang-up. He doesn't recognize there's sin in his life. He knows he's a good guy. But the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says all sin and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says if he doesn't deal with that and come to, to terms with it and understand what the Bible teaches, that he's going to hell. Nicest guy to ever go to hell, but he's gone. Why? Because there's sin in his life. That's not the standard. And so here's the problem. I don't care what you think of me. You shouldn't care what other people think of you because it's only God's standard that makes a difference throughout this life and all of eternity. So you can get a bunch of people in your corner to say you're right in what you're doing, you're right in stealing what you're stealing, you, you were promised a promotion or a raise and you didn't get it, so you're right in doing what you're doing. You can get a hundred people to line up and say it's okay, but it doesn't matter because you're never going to appear before them on Judgment Day. You're going to have to stand before a holy and righteous God and say, you know what? I was stealing, wasn't I? <laughs> yeah, you were. And so we look at that, that's what we need to do. Confession means we don't deny the presence or the practice of sin in our life. Confession also means that we tell the truth about what we've done. Just tell the truth about what we've done. It doesn't seem very difficult, but apparently it must be for some of us. Confession literally means this, that we say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. If we lied, we lied. If we steal, we stole. If we committed adultery, it's adultery. If we cheated, we've cheated. It means literally to say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. You can't come up with some creative term for it because that's not available to us. If we confess Jesus as Lord, it means literally we say the same thing about Jesus that the Bible says about Jesus. He is who the Bible says that He is. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning simply this, I, I, I just tell you exactly, I agree exactly with what the Bible says about who Jesus is. So he goes through it, and that's that verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what he's talking about. To tell the truth. To be sincere. 
See, and that has to do with walking in the light. Some of us are trying to walk in the shadow, and you can't do it. You're either walking in obedience or you're walking in disobedience, and you know the area that you're walking in disobedience. You need to tell the truth about it and say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm living a life that's a lie. See, in Roman times, what they used to do was they would, would sculpt a sculpture, and the, word, the English word sincere comes from a combination of, of Latin terms, which means basically sincera, which had to do without wax. They said, what does that mean, without wax? Well, what they would do is whenever they would sculpt something, if they made a boo-boo, they would take wax and they would fill in the blemish where they made a mistake. So they'd take this wax and they'd fill it in. And so what some sculptors would do to make sure that people understood that they were selling sculptures without wax or sincera, sincere, what you saw is what you got. The only way that people ever knew they bought a bogus uh, sculpting was that they would take it, set it out, the sun would beat on it, the light would shine on it, and the wax would melt. And it would start running down the sculpture. Sculpture. Is that right? Sculpting. This thing. (laughs) And it would start to run down. And so what these guys would do is say, look, you know what? I'm selling you this piece without wax. Sincere. Some of us are filled with wax. And when the light shines on us, that's when we all can tell. You can sit here all day long and look perfect, without a blemish. But when the light shines on you and the Word of God illuminates the area of your life where you're disobedient, then guess what? The wax starts to run. You kind of picture a woman with her mascara starting to run, you know what I mean? I mean, that's what it's like. And so what God is saying is that we need to tell the truth about what we've done. Literally to say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. We need to walk in the light or we need to be sincere about what God says. It also means that we give glory to God by what we're saying about our sin. This is a message we heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him there's no darkness at all. It's to be able to say about God, Hey, you know what, Lord? You're right. What you say about sin is sin. And the fact that uh, I recognize that gives glory to God. Because I recognize His sovereignty in my life. I recognize that He is in control of my life. I recognize that what He says is sin is sin, and I tell the truth about it, I stop denying the practice of it, and we deal with it. That's why in Ezra 9, 13 through 15, it says, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. See, nothing, nothing ever happens in our life because God is an unjust judge. If you suffer the consequence of sin, part of confession means that you say, Lord, you know what? I'm suffering the consequences and I deserve it because it's not you who is doing it to me. I did it to myself. I deserved it. He says, and yet our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? What they did was they married people that they weren't supposed to. They married the daughters of foreign nations and God said, don't do it. But they justify it. They say, look, you know what? Look what we've got to deal with and look what these babes look like. Come on, I mean, you've got to be serious. We're talking good breeding material here, God. I mean, you, got, you want these healthy people here, don't you? And so he's saying, wait a minute. They finally had to get to the point of saying, hey, he said not to marry him. We married him. We shouldn't have married him. We did what we did was wrong. For, for whatever reasons, we justified it at the time, good-looking babes or not. So shall we again break your commands and intermarry? Well, would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it none of us can stand in your presence. God, you know what? I just want to admit to you what I'm doing is wrong. And I'll tell you what, the fact that I'm still around to talk about it is a sign of your graciousness and of your compassion. 
because I wouldn't be able to stand in your presence if you weren't a gracious and righteous judge and compassionate. Man, I'll tell you, some of us ought to be real glad that he is because we're doing things that we would have been stoned for a long time ago. It also means that we humble ourselves before God and acknowledge our unworthiness. One of the toughest things to do with sin is to say we're wrong and we need to stop doing it. If we confess our sins. In Ezra 9, 6, he says, Oh my God, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you because our sins are heavier than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. The sacrifices of God, David wrote, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do you ever talk to somebody who says, Oh, I'm sorry for what I did, but you can tell there's no sincerity. That's just, you know, they're placating you, they're blowing you smoke, they just want to try to resolve the consequences of their actions rather than being broken in spirit. See, confession entails a brokenness that we haven't seen in our society. See, you know what scares me is that we're going around telling people all you need to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's no brokenness for sin anymore. It's kind of like, oh, oh, great, you know, I add Christ to my life and everything will fall into place. There's no brokenness of saying, you know what, man, I deserve to go to hell for what I've done. I put Christ on the cross for my sin. There's a brokenness that goes along with understanding what the Bible teaches. And yet, confession's the same thing. You can't confess your sins to one another. We can't make things right unless there's a brokenness that accompanies it. Oh, I'm sorry, babe, for doing that. You're not sorry. Well, how can you tell the fact that I just went, huh, I'm sorry. <laughs> how can you, well, you're reading into that, aren't you? No, you know what? When we're sorry, we know, and, we, and, and, and you'll know it when the person who's confessing their sins to you is sorry. There is a broken spirit that goes along with genuine repentance that isn't found in just a, a flip. Oh, sorry, forgive me? No. There can be no forgiveness if there's no confession. There can be no restoration if there's no acknowledgement of guilt. And that's, his, and that's the fifth point. Confession means that we admit our guilt before God. God, you're right. I'm guilty. Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector and a guy who was skimming it off the top, in Luke 19.8 says this, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and I've, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. He's not saying, oh, you know what, if I did anything wrong, I'll, I'll pay him back four times the amount. The if that's used here is if and since it is so. If and since it is so. What he's saying in, in English we put in, Lord, you know what, since I've cheated people out of, any, out of anything, or what I've cheated them out of, I'll pay back to them four times. He knew he was cheating. He was a tax collector. And basically the way that it worked was this. Rome had a certain quota. And if you were the tax collector, you were required to fill that quota. Anything you could squeeze out of people over and above the quota, you'd look at as commission. But God called it cheating. He called it stealing from the people. And so what Zacchaeus said was, you know what? I know what I did was wrong. I stole from people. And now to show you that I really mean business with you, I'm going to pay back four times the amount that I stole. I'm going to make it right. And that's why Jesus said, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Genuine repentance. Not a flippant deal with God, but a repentance that, that it is from a broken heart that says, Lord, I know I did wrong. If you lied to somebody, you go and you tell them you lied to them. If you stole something from someone, then you go and you pay them back. It, whatever you've done, whatever you've done publicly, you know what, and the other thing that's really funny is, is that we try to make things amends secretly. You know what I'm saying? We lie in front of a group of people, and then we'll go to the individual and say, oh, I'm sorry, I lied to you. But the problem is there's a whole group of people who don't, don't, still don't know the fact that you lied. Oh, I really didn't say that about you. 
And all these people are sitting there, oh, well, she didn't say that. And so then goes aside and says, oh, look, you know what? I really did say that, and I'm sorry. Oh, wait a minute. You better be as public with your confession as you were with your sin. Because there's a whole group of people that don't know what's going on yet, and they need to be straightened out. So if you're going to sin publicly, you're going to have to confess publicly. That should shake some of us up from sinning publicly. Don't do it. Make it right in front of a group of people. I had a guy at a baseball game who called me that night afterwards. I thought, well, that was nice that he called me. He said, oh, I'm really sorry what I did was wrong. And he went on for about a half an hour. You know, he was wearing me out. Oh, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. That's okay. Well, I'm really sorry. Hey, you know what I thought of afterwards? What, he's gonna, what he really should do, according to what the Bible teaches is, he should apologize in front of everybody, in front of the umpires, in front of both teams, in front of the people that were there, because those people left there not knowing that he ever tried to make it right. You see the problem? It needs to be dealt with. We need to admit our guilt before God and also to make public, if we sin publicly, we confess publicly. We admit our guilt before other people. Number six, we recognize that Jesus Christ is the only defense before a holy and righteous God. It says, My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have, only, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Jesus, our act of confession doesn't make us right before God. You follow what I'm saying? Confession is nothing more than a work to try to please God. Should we do it? Yes, the Bible teaches it. But does that make us right? No. Jesus Christ's death on the cross and His death and blood shed for us alone is what makes us right with God. Not our works that we do, not confession that we, may, that we may utter, not a pious prayer or whatever, but His blood and His blood alone is what makes us right before God. He is our defense. He is our advocate. There is no other defense attorney who will speak for us other than Jesus Christ Himself. He is, and the reason is, here's what our struggle is, and let me give you this last one and then I'll close on this. Confession that means that we also rely completely upon God's forgiveness God's faithfulness and righteousness for our forgiveness and cleansing. We rely completely on what God says in His Word. Here's the struggle. Let me ask you a question in closing. Let me stick these up here so that you have them. But here's the struggle. As a Christian who struggles with sin, as a person who's put their faith and trust in Christ, listen to me careful because this is a confusing thing. Did Jesus die for our sins, past, present, and future? Did he die for all of them? Amen. He did. He died for them all. Now, does that mean, as a Christian, since I know that, and this is what gets dangerous, the longer that we know the Lord and the longer that we understand certain things about Scripture. But does that mean that I can now sin, choose to sin, and that he'll forgive me for that sin? Does it mean that I could do that? Yes, it does. That's the problem. Yes, it does. Because here's the, other, here's the flip side of that. If it means I don't have that choice, then what does that mean? That he didn't die for my sins? No, he did. I still have the choice. Here's where the rub is, and this is what gets so confusing about 1 John 1, 9. And that is this. Jesus died for sin for all eternity for those who put their faith and trust in Christ. Make no mistake about it. If you sin after the fact, after you've come to know Christ, then he's faithful and he's just because he said he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. Confession involves a lot of things that we just talked about. But here's the argument, or here's what I want to get across to you. Romans 6 says this, Well, then how can we, who have died to sin, continue to live in it? And it goes like this, If my son sins against me and is disobedient, okay, follow this, is he still my son? 
Yes. That'll never change. Is there a strain in our relationship until he confesses what he did? You better believe it. Until he says, oh, sorry, forgive me. No. Until there's genuine confession and repentance, there's a strain in our relationship. David said this in Psalm 32, For a year I wasted away in my sin. In Psalm 51 he said this, Lord, restore to me the joy of my relationship, the joy of my salvation. There is a, there is a distancing, there is a separation from God that takes place when a believer sins. We don't have the same relationship that we do when we're living in obedience. Are we still Christians? Yes, we are. Do we lose our salvation? Not in a million years. John 10 says, if the Father gives them to me, they'll never, I'm never going to lose one of them. There's no way that we're ever lost from that, okay? Understand this. But what I want you to consider is this. The next time you think about cheating, lying, stealing, having sex outside of marriage, whatever it is you're struggling with, I want you to think about this. Could you, at the foot of the cross, commit what you're about to commit, realizing that Jesus Christ's death on that cross is what gives you the freedom to choose whether you want to sin or not. His forgiveness is found in the blood that He shed. Could you stand at the base of the cross and fill out an income tax and lie on it with Him up there watching what you're doing? Could you lay underneath the foot of the cross and have sex outside of marriage with Him dying up there and knowing what it costs to forgive your sin? That's really the issue for a Christian. You know, there were soldiers there that gambled. There were soldiers there that laughed at him. There were soldiers there that mocked at him. They cursed him. They, they made fun of what was going on. But they weren't his kids. They didn't know him. Can God's people screw around at the foot of the cross knowing the price that Jesus paid to forgive your sins? That's the question I want you to leave here with and struggle with. You will never ever lose your relationship with God. It will be strained when you sin, but you'll always be a son of God if you put your faith and trust in Christ. But you think about what you're doing the next time that you plan on doing it because we got this cheap grace that's being thrown around and that is God forgives you, you might as well go ahead and do it. He'll forgive you anyway. Don't worry about the consequences. Hey, once saved, always saved. I can do whatever I want to do. Then you try to do it at the base of the cross and you look up and you see the blood coming down from his head. You hear him say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You see a soldier's stick a spear in his side. You see everything that they did to Jesus beaten beyond recognition, the whipping that he took. You see what he went through so he could forgive you. God's grace is not a cheap sideshow. And you leave here today with one thing in mind and nothing else, and I will too. That is the next time I choose to sin against God, I better remember what Jesus did to pay for that sin. If that doesn't straighten me out, then I'm not one of his kids. That should shake up anyone who calls himself a child of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to understand a little more clearly what it means to confess our sins. God, we just thank you that you are faithful and that you are just. That what you say, you do. That for those of us who have put our faith and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross and his resurrection for our sins, that we're just grateful the fact that when we make a mistake, that we're always going to be your kids. And Father, some of us here right now don't know you, and we need to come to know you. We need to realize that we're sinners, that all of us have sinned and fall short of your glory, and that we're on a road to hell, and so we've asked Jesus Christ into our life. We need to understand that. For those of us who have, we're sitting here, and we're not sincere. We've got wax dripping all over us, and if we would follow one another around, we'd be shocked and amazed at some of the things that we see. But you see it anyway, and you know it. And yet you still died for that sin. We believe that Jesus died for the sin of the world. For past, present, and future, there's nothing we could ever do for those who have come to know you that will ever separate us from your love. And we just thank you for that. 
But Lord, I also pray that as we leave here today that we begin to take serious this walk that we have with you. Living a life that's sincere. A life that the light of God, the word of God shines on us, shows us what we're doing and that we could openly and honestly admit that what you say is true. God, help us to realize the next time that we choose to sin, that we're looking at your grace as some cheap sideshow and realize what Jesus paid to forgive that sin. Give us a good, clear picture of him on the cross, of the blood that he shed and the beating that he endured, just so that we could be forgiven and spend an eternity with you. God, may we never take that for granted. May we always understand the price that was paid. You tell us that we've been bought with a price. And let us glorify you in all that we do, all that we say, and all that we think. And we just thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.